This teaching comes to you from the team at St Mark's, Darling Point, Sydney. We hope that it blesses you. The first reading today comes from the book of Matthew, chapter 28, verses 1 to 10. After the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and, going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, He has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. Hear the word of the Lord. The second reading is from Romans chapter 6, starting at verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptised into Christ Jesus were baptised into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him, so that the body ruled by sin may be done away with, so that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe we also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death has no longer mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, you, Father, that all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness. Open your hearts to receive your word, that we may know you better and be thoroughly equipped for every good work, through your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Please do be seated. I'd love to wish you uh, a happy Easter by greeting you with the traditional Paschal greeting, which is, Christ is risen, to which you respond. Now in Greek, the original Greek, it's Christos Anesti, but up in the top end of the Northern Territory, uh, they say in Creole, Jesus Christ bin got up from the bala. And in the Torres Strait, they say, Jesus Christ bin got up lap one again. 
In East Arnhem Land, they say, Jesu Christiani Wilnyan Yaka Rakuni. It's exactly how they pronounce it. Um, in the middle of the desert, the Pichinjara, uh, well-known uh, peoples of the Western Desert, they say, Jisunya Christania Wankangiru. In Perth, the Nyungyan people say, Jesus Kwaja Yirbayan. But in Cantonese, you'll have to forgive me, everyone will have to forgive me, they say, Gaidak Fakwadlu. In Finnish, Christus Nusi Koyliesta. In Irish, Tor Christ Iritha. In Romanian, Christos Inviat. In Arabic, Al Messi Kam. In Singhalese, Oh, this is tough. Christus Vahanse Utana Viaita. In Afrikaans, Christus Het Opgastan. In Mandarin, Jido Fuhule. In Uyghur, Yisa Tirildi. In Japanese, Harus, Harus Utusu Fukatsu. In Korean, I know there's some Koreans here, so I'm very nervous. <laughs> Yesunimi buwal has yasada. Yesda. How did I do? Thank you. <laughs> oh dear. You can punish me later. In, in Swahili, Christu Amafuhuka. In Hungarian, Christus Feltamat. In Ukrainian, Christos Voskres. We had someone from Ukraine here this morning. In German, Christus ist Aufstanden. In French, La Christ ist Resuscitate. And in Klingon, and someone actually corrected my Klingon spinning, uh, pronunciation this morning. If you speak a language that I didn't mention, please wish me at the door this morning. Please uh, speak to me in your language and give me the greeting as it is. But we gathered here today in the name remembering uh, an event that some people might say is one of the greatest hoaxes ever played on humankind. Is it, in fact, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, a gigantic fraud perpetuated by the church to prop up its institutional power? Now, at well over 80 million copies sold worldwide, Dan Brown's 2003 novel, The Da Vinci Code, is among the 10 greatest top-selling books in history. It was also turned into a film starring Tom Hanks, which is a singular distinction for any book, of course. Now, I'm not going to give you a complete plot summary of it, but central to the story was the idea that orthodox Christian beliefs about, what, about Jesus, the kind of things we've just announced in the Nicene Creed, were actually the result of a conspiracy by the Catholic Church. Uh, what happened, says Dan Brown, was that the Emperor Constantine, uh, in about 315 to 321 AD, he became a Christian because he wanted to unite the Roman Empire. He thought Christianity could unite the Roman Empire, and he thought the only way that pagans would accept Christianity is if it starred someone who was a bit like a God-man hybrid, a bit like Hercules had been. Someone who was a bit God, a bit man. That would work to pull in the pagans. So what he did was he suppressed and he destroyed another version of Christianity, which told a story of a very human Jesus. According to Dan Brown, there were 80 other Gospels which cost Constantine censored by destroying them, only allowing Matthew, Mark, Luke and John to survive the four Gospels we have in our Bible. Now, in this suppressed version of Christianity, according to Dan Brown, Mary Magdalene and Jesus got married and had a child. 
After the crucifixion, because Jesus died and stayed dead, Mary Magdalene moved to the south of France, I mean, why wouldn't you? Where she founded, became the matriarch of a dynasty of European royalty called the Merovingian dynasty. Now, all of this has been covered up by the church because it wanted to suppress the role of women in the early church. The belief that Jesus is God, including the resurrection, which establishes his divinity, was invented by the church to reinforce its male hierarchy. Now, let's be clear. The Da Vinci Code did for history what Fifty Shades of Grey did for sex. It turned a fantasy with little connection to reality into a bestseller. And in both instances, I reckon you should feel a little dirty after reading them. You might think that Dan Brown would immediately say to his critics, look, it's just a fiction, it's a story, it's enjoyable, just enjoy the ride, don't take me so seriously. I mean, J.K. Rowling doesn't need to claim that Harry Potter is true, that there actually is a platform 13 and 3 quarters and a Hogwarts school somewhere, it doesn't matter, it's a great story. But not Dan Brown. He's doubled down and insisted that pretty much everything in the book background of the novel is true. In 2003, while promoting the novel, he was asked what parts of the history in his novel actually happened. And he replied, without a trace of irony, absolutely all of it. Someone said to him, if you were to write this book as non-fiction, which bits would you leave out? And he said, nothing. Now, that's a surprising claim, since no academic historian, whether Christian or not, agrees with him, not in the slightest. And surely many of his readers, perhaps you are among them, enjoyed the narrative just as fiction and no more. But the phenomena of the Da Vinci Code is surely evidence of a widespread cultural suspicion that it is the kind of thing that could be true, even if we're hazy about the details. Oh, the Da Vinci Code was a long time ago, 20 years now. But the suspicion still remains. It plays into a deeply held contemporary feeling, namely that big institutions and governments and churches are always plotting to suppress the truth for their own advantage and to oppress those who disagree with them. This scepticism towards institutions has given rise to numerous conspiracy theories. And boy, do we live in the age of conspiracy theories. The QAnon theory, for example, or that 9-11 was actually carried out by the US government, or that the moon landings were faked, or that the CIA were the ones who, in fact, killed JFK. But it can actually be found in a more intellectual form in the writings of an influential philosopher called Michel Foucault, who teaches this suspicion to all forms of power. And you shouldn't underestimate his influence. He's had a massive impact on the approach to the humanities, which permeates our school and our university curricula uh, throughout the humanities, in fact. Now, you would have to say that big institutions, including governments and churches, have not helped matters by their evident failings. Sometimes we are indeed untrustworthy. But is the resurrection of Jesus a conspiracy? Is it a hoax based on a pagan fertility myth? with a springtime festival in mind. I mean, of course, we have to flip that because we're in autumn, but in the Northern Hemisphere, concocted to convince Greeks and Romans to accept the patriarchal power of the institutionalised church and of the imperial power of Rome. If I'm going to say no to that claim, I can imagine you might say, well, of course, that's what, what you would say, isn't it? You are a representative of the very institution that benefits from the claim that Jesus is the risen Son of God. 
But what I'd like us to do this morning is to consider a few things that are actually the case. Firstly, the resurrection was from the very beginning the subject of conspiracy theories. And because of this, we can see that the Gospel writers are very, very careful about laying out the evidence for the resurrection. In fact, the Gospel of Matthew tells us about one of these conspiracy theories in the verses just after the ones we had read for us a little while ago. It's the stolen body conspiracy theory, which says that the resurrection never happened because the disciples stole the body and then came up with the fiction, concocted the fiction, that Jesus had risen from the dead. They hid the body somewhere and went about saying that he'd risen from the dead. Then they went on to claim that Jesus was not just a great teacher and a good guy, but the Son of God. Matthew tells us, in fact, that there was a conspiracy to invent the conspiracy theory and that the local religious authorities paid the guards who had been set over Jesus' tomb to keep up the facade. Now, as far as conspiracy theories go, it's easily debunked on its own terms. There's the question, for example, of how the disciples, who were a barely armed group of fishermen from up north, could have overpowered the professional Roman guard set over the tomb. There's the fact that so many of the disciples would die horribly to defend the resurrection. Would they die to defend what they knew to be a hoax, a lie? Then there's the fact that the authorities could easily have disproven uh, the resurrection by just producing the body of Jesus. Oh, you might, it's not, we must say it's not that easy to hide a body. And you might say at that point, well, the disciples could have chopped up Jesus into little pieces or fed him to wild animals to conceal his body. But you've got to remember, they revered Jesus and would not have treated his dead body with this such disrespect had they stolen it, which would have made it much harder to conceal. So, so much for the conspiracy theory. If the first thing is to to consider is then that the resurrection was from from the beginning, the subject of conspiracy theories claiming that it wasn't true, then a second very important point follows, and it's this. The Christian claims that Jesus was the Son of God and has risen from the dead and not a belief that evolved over time, something they came to later, but was one of the very earliest proclamations of Christianity, if not the, in fact, the earliest proclamation of Christianity. There is simply no evidence of a, of a resurrectionless Christianity. The earliest documents of Christianity start by proclaiming, as we do today, Christ is risen. He has been declared with power to be the Son of God by being risen from the dead. And Christians were very clear what this claim meant. They did not speak of Jesus as the Greeks might speak of the hero Hercules or of Persephone, the goddess of the spring who returns every year. The Gospels, the Gospel writers, when you read them, they're not poets writing a beautiful mythology. They see themselves more as historians collecting evidence and presenting a case, writing prose. And sometimes their prose is a bit clunky. They're not interested in kind of evoking beauty so much as directing us to a particular truth. They use the language of testimony and witness. They tell the story of sceptics, like the legendary Doubting Thomas, who really should be called Believing Thomas, since that's what happened to him in the end. They most specifically do not say that Jesus is simply alive in their hearts. They believed him to be alive. 
And you know, the other thing was that they hadn't quite expected it. There was no pre-existing mythological template that Jesus matched. Jesus had spoken about rising from the dead during his ministry, and the resurrection was standard Jewish teaching of the time, but the disciples had not expected what in fact happened. Jesus isn't just fitting what they might have... It isn't a case of wish fulfilment. Quite clearly, they thought when he was killed, then that was it. They had a body to deal with and nothing more. The women, when they went to the tomb that first Easter day, what did they bring with them? They brought them with them spices to dress a dead body, not a meal for a living one who might be hungry after a couple of days in the tomb. So... The second point was that the claims about Jesus' resurrection are extremely early when it comes to Christianity. They didn't evolve. The third point, though, is that the resurrection of Jesus from the dead was not created by the church to bolster its power. It was the other way around. The resurrection of Jesus is the power that created the church. It is a claim not of the oppressor, but of the oppressed. Before the, the resurrection, the disciples were frightened, hiding for fear that they would also be rounded up and killed as religious weirdos and troublemakers. Afterwards, they preached with boldness, at great personal risk and for no personal profit. Far from being a claim invented to shore up patriarchal power in the church, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead was firstly the testimony of whom? Of women. Just as Jesus' mother Mary was the chief witness to the incarnation, so Mary Magdalene is celebrated, not as Jesus' wife, but as the first witness to the resurrection. And from the beginning, the news of the resurrection of Jesus was a subversive truth that those in power wanted to suppress. They wanted to hush it up. Religious institutions and political authorities alike found the message of Jesus the, son, the risen Son of God, a threat to them. They understood that it was a proclamation that their power was limited and finite and subject to the judgment of God. They understood that if Jesus was risen from the dead, then they would have to answer to a higher power, a higher authority. If Jesus, the crucified one, had risen from the dead and is now enthroned as Lord of all, then what is Caesar? What is any human power? As my friend uh, Dr. Matthew Wilcoxon, the rector of St. John's Darlinghurst, tweeted yesterday, no doubt is including in his sermon this morning, resurrections have consequences. Resurrections have consequences. I like that. He's right. Indeed they do. Which is why even today people try as hard as they can to deny that Jesus has risen. Now, you think that people who believe in speaking the truth to power would love the idea of the resurrection of Jesus. But ironically, today it is the hegemony of the individual that the resurrection most threatens. For if Jesus is risen from the dead and now reigns as Lord, then not only is every institution subject to him, but so is every person. Not only is the rule of kings and presidents over us subject to him, but our own rule over ourselves, our own self-government is subject to him as well. 
If we are suspicious of institutions and not suspicious of ourselves, then we are not suspicious enough. This Easter, what the resurrection asks of us is not to give up our treasured independence to some human institution which is trying to trick us, but to bow ourselves before the throne of the one who ultimately and wonderfully rules and whose kingdom shall have no end. Amen. Thanks for listening. Please visit our website at www.stmarksdp.org to subscribe to our new episodes, browse more resources and find more information about the community of St Mark's.